wow, you are like sunshine. Those were the first words uh, David, a young man, spoke to me. He was a stranger that was standing on my porch last Sunday, uh, last Monday. His hoodie was black but faded. Um, He wore a white button-down shirt and black bow tie, and both of them looked a bit worn. Ah, he's here to sell something. (laughs) As he takes out his spiral with pictures of publications and explains the program he's a part of, my mind traces back to an article I read after the last time I encountered one of these salesmen. The headline is, Scam. The magazines you order, pay for in cash, often never come. The money is gone. But I remember a little bit more. The door-to-door salespeople are often themselves ensnared inside of these programs. Young people who are given promises, and then they're moved from city to city, state to state, with promises that never materialize and no support system to pull them out. When something goes wrong, they are often left destitute and alone in a faraway place. They themselves are the bigger victims of the scam. They frequently end up trapped and imprisoned. It's a more obviously imprisoned Paul who wrote our passage today in Colossians. In the first two chapters of his letter, we've heard rich descriptions of who Jesus is. And here in chapter 4, as he's closing, he's turning to the practical implications of that. How do we live out what Colossians 1.20 says, that God is reconciling himself to all things, making peace by the blood of his cross? Well, our passage tells us first we pray for open doors. Verse 3 of our passage today has Paul asking the Colossians to pray that God may open a door for us, door for, open a, uh, to us a door for the word, in fact, to declare the mystery of Christ, to make it clear to others. He wrote as someone who wasn't longing for release, but as someone who longed for the release of others. He asked the Colossians in our text today to pray for an open door, and not the kind I think. If you were receiving a letter from me in prison, (laughs) the kind of prayer I might ask you to pray (laughs) uh, might not be for the release of others (laughs) in that moment. But Paul sees the situation differently than most of us would on first pass. For Paul, the guards that seemed to have power over him, and the privileged Roman citizens walking seemingly freely around him, they are the ones imprisoned, the ones roped in by a scam. Yes, they perpetuate the scam, but often unknowingly. Jesus, on at least one occasion, called a crowd and his disciples together and to declare the scam and the true reality. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. I love that uh, science fiction has really taken up this story, this kind of paradigm, uh, whether you might consider something like The Matrix or a little further back, Total Recall. 
um, there are tons of plot lines that revolve around the idea that the truest reality is not the one you've bought into. And the main character often has a choice to keep buying into the fraudulent reality, to stay safe and save their lives, or to lose their old lives, to enter the world of the world of truth and the world of risk in pursuit of true life. When Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was thrust into a new reality. And when his sight was healed, he was faced with a choice to live into it, knowing he would suffer or to reject it. He chose the truth. And here we see in this letter from prison that Paul considers himself the freed one. It is those around him, the ones trying to save their lives. They are the ones playing a game that is rigged for them to lose in the end. Pray that a door may be opened for the word. Pray that a door may be open so the people who are in the real prison will be set free. David, the young man, and I chatted for a bit on my porch, um, but before he could get any further into the pitch, I said, well, as we, most of us would do, I'm, I'm not going to buy anything today. <laughs> um, but we always have an extra plate at dinner if you'd like to join us. Really? He says. Really? And I'd be happy to write on your form that you did a great job. Um, So I'm filling out his form, and he asked me gently a couple of times if I was serious, (laughs) because he said he really would come. I said I was serious, and we ended our conversation talking about what was for dinner and that we'd see each other soon. Now, you might be tempted to think well of me for this, and I'd invite you to hold off on that just yet. (laughs) The next hours were far less, we'll say, flattering. (laughs) I was really excited for about 20 minutes and praying for there to be open doors to declare the mystery of Christ. And then this was followed by insecure thoughts like, my mom would kill me if she knew I invited a stranger to dinner. And what if he's casing the place? And am I putting my children at risk having a stranger in our home? There were moments when my thoughts were consumed with thinking about what if David encounters Jesus tonight in a particularly freeing way and maybe we're able to help get him free from this program that he's a part of. And then there were moments when I thought, what have you done, you deluded fool? In both my enthusiasm and concern, I texted a friend to pray. I picked up kids from school. I worried. I got hopeful. Then I worried some more and thought about all the serial killer movies I've been made to watch in life. You might not have someone like David knock on your door. And even if you do, it's not clear that your response should be the same. But every day we are going to have experiences where the reality that Christ is over all makes a difference in how we respond to our circumstances. Pray for open doors for Christ to be known. Paul tells the Colossians in verse 5 to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. To make the best use of time. Literally, to buy up the time. Paul walks in wisdom and is buying up the time. And he's 
in prison? (laughs) This is clearly not a wisdom that is primarily self-protective. It is not a wisdom that insulates a person from calamity. It's also not a feckless wisdom, or it would cease to be wisdom. As we've seen in Colossians 1, this wisdom is rooted in knowledge of God's will and living in a manner congruent with or worthy of our life in Christ. And sometimes when we hear phrases like God's will or living in a manner worthy, we feel like we've been handed one of two scripts to act out. So one script has fluffy lines about God's will and living in a manner worthy, so fluffy that they almost seem to say nothing. This script is so vague as to be utterly unhelpful. God's will is mysterious and living worthily, too subjective to say anything about. The script says things like, everything happens for a reason. Exit stage left. The second script is so exacting, we wonder if it was really written for us. God's will is narrowly defined. Do these things that they did 2,000 years ago in every situation with no variation. Living worthily is then detailed as perfect performance over every minute of your day. When you get this script, it's written in another language, and you're sweating it out because your part is coming up, so you better be ready. We want to walk in wisdom. We want to walk in knowledge of God's will and living worthily of the Lord. But too often, the scripts we have available need rewrites. (laughs) But what if there's no script? What if you are living in a unique time, one that is profoundly connected to the eras before it, but one that has its own challenges and gifts? What if you are receiving invitations from God in real time to say yes to, with the ability to say yes in your own unique way? What if instead of trying to act the part in a play, What if instead of trying to pray that somebody would send you the right lines, you're actually called to improvise? Now, before improvisation translates into make it up as you go, let's consider the practice of improv for a bit. And no, I will not begin doing this. (laughs) First, improv is deeply relational. People don't get up on a stage by themselves and perform improv solo, or if they do, it's called bad improv. (laughs) It's something done in relationship, and when done well, it's done with immense trust in your partner. Doing improv doesn't mean that you control the script. It just means that an ill-fitting script doesn't control you. The Reverend Samuel Wells, an Anglican priest, wrote a book I love called Improvisation, the Drama of Christian Ethics. In it, he writes, When improvisers are trained to work in the theater, they are schooled in a tradition so thoroughly that they learn to act from habit in ways appropriate to the circumstance. Doesn't that sound wonderful? (laughs) To be so thoroughly trained in the ways of God that you act out of habit, habitually 
in ways appropriate to your changing circumstances. Here in improv, knowing God's will far from fluffy or constricting is deeply grounding. It's an empowering base from which you move together with God and creativity into that will. Living worthily is no longer some task you undertake alone, but lived out in relationship with the God who has made you worthy. Walking in this kind of wisdom takes work. It is a craft that is practiced in and refined by your community. Reverend Wells continues, The church is given all it needs to continue to be Jesus' body in the world. It receives the Holy Spirit and is clothed with power and authority. It is given the scripture made up of apostolic witness of those who seek to report while being drawn into the drama. It is given baptism, a lyric way in which to incorporate people into the epic drama. It's given the Eucharist, a regular event in which the body of Christ meets the embodied Christ. It's a drama of encounter, reconciliation, and commission. It's given a host of other practices to form and sustain its life. Will those gifts prove to be enough? Will the church seek solace elsewhere? Will the epic of alternative narratives prevail? This is the intense drama of the present moment, of every moment in the church's history. You being here today, you standing, sitting, listening, responding, receiving, greeting one another, and praying, you are being grounded so as to be sent into the world in peace and mission to improvise well. Church of the Cross, let us live into the intense drama of this present moment. Pray for open doors. Walk in wisdom. At 6.30, my door was silent. Seven rolled around. 7.30. Eight. 8.30. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) I was... 90% disappointed and 10% relieved. I sat down to text my friend, letting her know that he didn't show. Should I be surprised? Probably not. In the middle of texting at around 8.40, there's a knock at the door. David came to dinner. He comes in. He meets my husband, Drew. I heat up his plate. He's friendly, and we sit down to talk while he eats. We mostly ask him questions about his day, his work, himself. He seems to enjoy talking and continues to be friendly, but is clearly guarded. He expresses significant loyalty to his program, telling us they helped him when he was in a tough spot in Kansas City. He wants to see the program through. He's only a few weeks in. He describes the incentives they offer, And I'm sure to a 26-year-old who's had some hard knocks, they seem like they might pay out. But the math just doesn't work out to make a living. He's eager to work hard. He believes this is his ticket, and he has a very real fidelity to his recruiters. In 99 to 1, 
it's a scam. We talk more, but it became clear his trust is in them, and while he appreciated the meal and the company, they are his people, and we are the strangers, and that was fine by him. In my limited experience, this is how improvisation often goes. There's not a tidy conclusion, but rather a trust that there was an opportunity for God to work in David's life and ours, and that he's not done yet. This lack of tidiness is true even when someone does say yes to Jesus. Don't be discouraged by the stories that seem unfinished. Most of the stories we encounter are still being lived. And turns out, we were never the main characters. Which I find to be good news, right? (laughs) When improvisation doesn't quite go the way we'd like, we're often then tempted to defensiveness. This week, um, I have enjoyed imagining a scene playing out of my mind. I, I enjoy picturing Paul and Harriet Tubman <laughs> spending time together, maybe in the kingdom of God in fullness. And she famously once said of her work um, with the Underground Railroad, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. And I picture Paul saying, I know, <laughs> me too, or whatever the male Jewish first century version of that is. <laughs> when what Paul and Harriet have done are the actions of people who know that Jesus reigns. Because Paul knows the deeper reality, even in prison, he doesn't act defensively. He doesn't have a bunker mentality. His wisdom is not to be translated as suspicion or distance. He's not saying, don't end up like I did in prison. Walk wisely. Rather, he prays for the open doors of others. We are living in a time and place where it is seeming to become increasingly unpopular to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe even more so to be a part of the church. We risk being written off or despised, excluded socially or politically. Maybe we're even a bit of an embarrassment to our family, our friends, our coworkers. This may be a new world for us as American Christians, but in most parts of the world and for most of history, this is normal or maybe even uncommonly good. And Paul's instructions are for us. This is what it looks like to live like Christ reigns. We don't hide in our shells. We don't just pray the persecution would pass. Out of our rootedness and love and our habits of praise, we pray for open doors for the gospel. Grounded in our practices of walking with God, we improvise our witness, seasoning our words with grace, living in peculiar ways, often ways of weakness and vulnerability that provoke questions from others. We would often like for it to be we live ways of strength and might and awesomeness that provoke questions from others. But honestly, from Paul in prison, it's often the weakness and the vulnerability, those ways in which we live, that provoke questions from others. You may have come in feeling weak today. You may not feel like you are in a position of power. In fact, you might feel a bit helpless in your present condition, that the contours of your life 
feel out of control. Take heart from the words of a brother in prison, a fellow Christ follower who, by all outward appearances, was not in control of his life. Or you may have come in today feeling strong, but realize that strength was misplaced. Take heart. Come to the table in your newfound need and receive the strength of Christ. Let us all together take heart that Christ is over all and he has chosen to dwell in and among us in love. Let us relish that he invites us to seek the freedom of others and to walk wisely in the freedom he has given us. Let us pray. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. And you have chosen to make yourself known to us. Thank you for opening the door of the gospel for yourself into our lives. Lord, open the door for your word to those around us. Give us strength and courage and the love and creativity to speak of you and live in ways that speak to the freedom you've given us. May we see many more come to the knowledge of their slavery in that they can find your compassion and you being ready to set them free. Continue to free us from places where we have misplaced our security. And Lord, be our ever-present and true partner in improvisation. God, we ask that you, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out among us, that we would walk wisely, pray steadfastly, give thanks, and that we would speak words, gracious, seasoned with salt, until you're coming, when you, Lord, and not us, finish the work. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.